0: I don't know if you have moments like this, but there's some times when you you wake up in the morning and you see the the winter storm, right? And, And you bring yourself in and it's gray and it's quiet and then someone just with an anointing and gift by God leads you into this just good, deep, quiet place of communion with God. You know what I mean? Uh, Pedro, I want to thank you for that, and, and you know all the band. can we maybe just show them our, uh, our appreciation? We're going to spend one more Sunday this morning in the Exodus. About three weeks ago, we started looking into this story that is so absolutely central to everything that happens in the Bible. You look at the Exodus and you get this blueprint of the character of God and what he's about and what he is up to and what he is like. And it's this story, for those of you who don't know, about a God who sees the suffering of his people. And he sees them in suffering and he hears them them crying out and he delivers them from a hopeless situation. He takes them out of out of this place called Egypt where they're enslaved, where, where they're without hope and without recourse and without power of their own. And, and through, through miracles and signs and his presence and might, he brings his people out of Egypt to a place of freedom. He delivers them. And the story goes that he, he brings them out of Egypt and he brings them through this desert where he starts to hone them and train them and teach them what does it mean to, to look and act and be my people, all the while with this promised land before their eyes, this, this, this good place where, where God's will will be done, where God's blessing will be manifest, this hope and this future that stands in stark contrast to the hopelessness that they once had. And these past few weeks, we've been looking at segments of it, what, what God did in Egypt, and, and how God brought them out, and how the rest of the Bible digs into, it sinks, it sinks these roots into this theme, and, and, and develops it to teach us what God continues to do. We, we've looked what it's like to be in the desert. And what we're going to do today is look at one specific place in that desert, and it's called Sinai. It was about three months after God brought Israel out of Egypt. He brings them in the desert to this mountain called Horeb or Sinai. And what God begins to do there is to unfold to them what, what it's going to mean for this, this, this ragtag group to be his people, how to live like his people and act like his people and talk and walk like his people. And he begins to train them and hone them and develop them at this place called Sinai. It's where he gives the Ten Commandments, It's where he gives all those other weird laws as well. And today we are going to look at them all. Have you ever paged through the Old Testament and felt like you were reading this obsolete book filled with esoteric rules that, can we just be honest, really have nothing to do with me today? We're going to look at those. We're going to see what they're about, and why they're important, and why God brought those to the people of Israel, and what God was doing at Sinai. So where this comes in the storyline is two chapters back to back that we're going to hone in on. It's Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. We're going to be doing a little bit of flipping in there in a moment, but we're going to start at Exodus 19. And what I want to do is I want to carve out, as is, is, is you start turning there to look, three verses. I want to hone in on three verses because I'm going to make this case. I'm going to make the case that if you were trying to understand the Old Testament, what it's about, where it's going, and how the New Testament develops it, and you were to say, give me just like five verses, five snippets to sink my teeth into, these three verses I'm going to give you would be one of those five. That's how significant they are to getting all that God is going to do with the people of Israel. And he says this. It says that Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called to him from the mountain, from Sinai. And this is what he said. Moses, this is what you're to say to the house of Jacob. Okay? This is what you were to tell the people of Israel. And here it is. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. You were witnesses, guys. You were there. You saw how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is israel's mission statement it is their mandate it is the core defining thing of who they are and what they're about and what all of these later laws are going to come to describe and define i think the the mistake that a lot of us have when we think of the ten commandments and those other laws of israel is that we're always so quick to be jumping to this idea of what am i supposed to do how many times in our relationship with god Do we find ourselves in this odd place where it seems to be defined by what does God want me to do and not want me to do? As though this summarizes the entire total of what my relationship with him is. You know what I mean? It's not how it starts. And don't breeze by this too quick. Because it doesn't start with what you're supposed to do. It starts with what God has done for you. God comes to Israel They weren't anything great. They weren't anything holy. They weren't anything righteous. I wonder if most of them even knew who he was. But God doesn't care because God fundamentally is a God of of compassion and a God of grace. And he comes down and he hears the cries and he sees the suffering. And God has a heart that breaks for his people. And so for God, it begins, I rescued you. I redeemed you. I carried you on eagle's wings because that's the kind of God I am. Because when it comes to our relationship with God, it doesn't start with us. It starts with him. And everything that it will mean for Israel to be to be the people of God is rooted in the fact that there is a God who loved and saved them. Are you with me? Now, it goes on and and it says that if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, in other words, now what I'm about to do, Israel, is I'm about to enter into a covenant with you. Let's talk about covenant just for a minute. Covenant, big church word, right? We don't really use it in any context in today's world except for one. I'll get to that in a moment. Now, a covenant is nothing more than a contract. It's an ordinary, just everyday Hebrew word that gets translated here that would be the equivalent today of saying contract. I'm going to make a contract with you. I'm going to make you a promise, and we're going to make an agreement, and it's going to be binding. I'm putting my name on it. I'm putting my reputation on it. I'm putting collateral on it. I am entering into this with you. Now think about that. Why on earth would God enter into any kind of promise, covenant, or contract with me and with you? You know, what does he need from me? Well, I mean, geez, man, I really like that. If, if, if maybe I make you a promise, I can get, really, is that what God's doing? But this is what God does. He lowers himself. He lowers himself and he gives these, these assurances, these, these promises, these things that like, oh, you can, go, you can set your feet on this. You can sink your teeth into this. I'm making you a promise and it's something that I'm staking my life, God says. My reputation, God says. My name on. God says, let's make a contract. The problem with the word contract, though, it's a bit, um, shall we say, forensic. Would you agree? There's one place today that we continue to use the word covenant in lieu of contract. Think of what it might be. Marriage. You ever hear that people will often talk about a marriage covenant far more than they'll talk about a marriage Contract. Can you imagine like when your, your, your spouse proposed to you, if there was a ring, and then they started bringing out like 18 pages of legalese and like .6 font, you know, going, and we'll agree to do this, and if you'll agree to line three, subparagraph A, I'll agree, right? It doesn't work that way, right? Because there's something about the word contract that, shall we say, sucks the romance out of life. So God makes a covenant, but the covenant is a contract nonetheless, Right? I'm going to make a covenant with you, and if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, he says, we're going to be up to three things. Number one, you are going to be my treasured possession. You are going to be so dear to me. I think of what it's like for a guy and a girl who meet and fall in love, and it comes to that place where it transcends beyond the questions Are they the one? To, I would do anything for him or her to be the one. God says, you will be that intimate to me, that dear to me. You will be treasured to me. You will be my treasured possession, the Hebrew, I love it, my segula, my dear one. That's what you'll be to me. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. Let's just think about this term for a minute. When you think about kingdom, right? What do you think of? You think of a place, right? Let's find this country, this kingdom, this territory. But who does God say will be the kingdom? Not a place. Not a where. But a who. Who? You will be my kingdom. You will be where my rule manifests. You will be where, where my presence is found. You will be where my will and my way is done. And you will be for me a priest. Does that mean we all have to get like black robes with little tabs? Well, yeah, you're right. Actually, we no. What it means to be a priest? A priest, by definition, means nothing more than this: middleman. A priest is nothing more than a middleman. In the ancient world, they had pagan priests. And what these pagan priests would do would be to, to stand between you and the God, to speak on your behalf to the God, and to bring God's blessings, God's presence, and God's word to you. But you needed the priest to get to God. In today's world, even in Christianity, Catholics will still talk about While those of other um, Protestant varieties typically will not. How come? Well, in a Catholic mindset, the priest is the one who brings God's sacramental blessing to me. And it has to come through the priest. Through a middleman. Where in Protestant thinking, they talked about a priesthood of all believers. The idea being that when God comes to Israel, he says, each and every one of you are priests. Priests that I'll work through, priests that I'll speak through, priests that I'll manifest my goodness and grace through to all these nations and to all these people who know nothing about me, who have nothing of my spirit, No, nothing of my way. You will be my priests to them. And you will be for me a holy nation. Holy is another one of these words that I think gets um, confused. You hear holy, right? What do you think? Like, I'm here, but man, if he's holy, bam, baby, right? He's up there. It's this idea, well, it even comes in the phrase, holier than thou, Right? that you are just like so close to perfection, you are so righteous. But guys, that's not what holy means. Holy means this, to be set apart. That's it. To be set apart for some kind of special purpose. And what God says to Israel is I'm going to set you apart, though the whole earth is mine. You will be set apart as something chosen for a special purpose. Obey me fully and keep my covenant and you will be my segula, my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What God is doing is entering into this relationship at Sinai with his people, both of intimate relationship and missional purpose. I will be close to you in an intimate way and you will be the ones that I bring my presence to this world through. Does it make sense? This right here is what Israel is all about. Now, you start unpacking the story. Moses comes down and he tells the people, and they start to prepare themselves, and, Mo, and, and then God comes down in, in his way with like fire and earthquakes and power and might, and it's awe-inspiring. It's like nothing like they saw in Egypt. I mean, it blows it away. And the next thing God does is he then gives them the Ten Commandments. Now, a little bit of things I think we need to unpack on these as well. I think there's a lot of misconceptions on the Ten Commandments. Number one is this. The first is that I think that for most people, they think that the only thing God did on Mount Sinai was give the Ten Commandments. They showed up. Okay, kids, bathroom break. 45 seconds later, we got them. Let's move on, right? I want you to do something today. You got your Bible? Open up to Exodus 19. Okay, now keep one finger there. And what I'd like you to do is flip ahead through Leviticus and then into Numbers and come until you hit Numbers 10. You got it? Almost, okay. Do you see all of that? You have that chunk in your hand? This is everything that God gives at Mount Sinai. Does that feel like more than 10 to you? Right? Well, I don't know. My Bible's using the 188.5. Yeah, I mean, no, no. I mean, right? I mean, there's more than 10 pages. You could do a word on a page and, and there would be more, right? This is everything God gives at Sinai. He gives the 10, but He gives more than the 10. Later rabbis would number it to around 600 give or take. All of these laws and all of these ways that tend to be sure, but the 10 plus all of these other things that are going to define what it means to be in this covenant with him. Now, second misconception about what God does at Sinai is that when God gives all of these laws, right, the 10 plus all of these others, that there's some that are really important to follow and others that don't matter so much, okay? There's some that, that are binding on us today, and others that, well, you know, right? You'll hear Christians talk like this, that, you know, within that, there's, there's, there's to be sure, like, moral laws, but there's also, like, ritual laws, and civil laws, and ceremonial laws, and God was really only concerned with some of them. You know? It's just not the case. That's not how God laid it out. God makes zero distinction, and neither does the Old Testament, between moral law and ceremonial law and ritual law and and civil law. For him, it's all part of it. It's all important. Let me show you what I mean. took this out of Leviticus, all right? Because we all go there in our daily readings. Check this out. Do not cut the hair at the side of your head or clip the edge of your beard. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am Yahweh. Do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute. Okay, let's just kind of think about this grouping here for a moment. One of these we're probably looking at going, really? What? The other we're looking at going, okay, debatable. And the other we're probably looking at going, yeah, probably some good advice there. Probably some really good moral teaching there at the bottom, right? But do you see how in Leviticus, it is all intertwined? There's no like, here's the moral section, here's the civil section, here's the ritual section. God will say in one breath, hey, have a bad haircut, right? And then the next same breath go, and you know, you probably don't want to be making your daughter a prostitute either. You see what I mean? Let me give you another example. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against your people. We we can kind of roll with that, right? And then this, love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus will call the second greatest command. But don't make different kind of animals, and don't plant your fields with two different kinds of seed. Don't wear clothing woven with two kinds of material. Are you seeing any distinction here in the text that points one out to be more important than the other? One that is commanded that you follow it as opposed to the other. Love your neighbor as yourself. We can get behind that, but I just got to ask, who here today is wearing like a cotton polyester blend? because you make me sick. (laughs) The Old Testament covenant does not make distinctions. God gives this law. And at its core, we see this thing that's amazing, but then there's all this other stuff, and can I just ask, have you ever struggled to make sense of this? What does God want me to do? And how do I know? You know, I want to circle back on that marriage covenant thing here today. I want to give you a way of thinking about what these laws meant and what they were like for ancient Israel. What I'd like you to think about at Mount Sinai is the equivalent of a wedding. That what God is doing to Israel is marrying him. He's wooed her, rescued her, fought for her, carried her away to his place, and now at Sinai is about to enter into a marriage relationship with her. Okay? Now go with me. Those of you who have been married, I'm going to bet took vows. Yeah? If not, you might want to question. All right? (laughs) And the vows, I bet, didn't list out every single thing that was going to encapsulate how you would treat each other in the marriage. Because, let's face it, you would still be there giving those vows to this day. My bet is that your vows consisted of a few big overarching conceptual things. Things like, you know, I will love her and honor her and keep her no matter what. I'll forsake all others, and be husband or wife to to him or her as long as we both shall live. Are you with me? Think about your vows, though. We give these overarching conceptual promises, but do they actually describe what life is going to be like in marriage in the day-to-day? No, instead they serve almost like headers, conceptual fields, ideas, that you can hang the day-to-day on. Are you with me? I want you to think about the Ten Commandments like that. Go ahead and look at Exodus 20 again. If you're looking at Exodus 19, we saw that verse, and then just ahead is Exodus 20, and what you're going to see God do at 20 verse 1 is give the Ten Commandments. Do you see it? Now, do you see if you read them through to 3, 4, 12, 17, and then you get to 18, and there's kind of like a break in the story. Do you see how the Ten Commandments are, in a way, separated as a unit to themselves? These are the marriage vows. These are the conceptual fields. These are the ideas that all of those other laws will hang on. But see, you know as well as I do that marriage isn't just in the big, oversweeping theoretical vows. It's in the day-to-day, isn't it? Those hundreds of little things that we do every single day, the way that we talk, the way that we act. It's all these seemingly insignificant things like, what time do we go to bed? And when we go to bed, do we go to bed together or not? How much time do we spend together and what are those little cues that we know when we need time together and need time apart? How do we manage our money? What station do we set the radio to or whose playlist comes on in the alarm in the morning? What is the proper and improper way to squeeze a tube of toothpaste, right? Do dirty socks go in the hamper or on the floor? Who does the dishes? Who takes care... It's all of these seemingly insignificant things that, that seem like they don't matter, but they really do. Because it's in those things, isn't it, that, that intimacy flourishes or resentment forms? It's in those things that we find ourselves walking in harmony with someone or in this odd, disjointed relationship of not really getting who each other are. And that's what those hundreds of other laws are. If Sinai is a wedding and the Ten Commandments are the vows, all of these other hundreds of laws are simple ways of how it applies day to day. Because God is not just about big theoretical vows. God is also about that intimate personal connection and how it plays out in the day-to-day. And this is what the entire covenant of laws is about. This is what it means, God says, to be in an intimate relationship with me. This is what it means to do life day-to-day how to walk together and talk together and laugh together and and get along how to grow together fulfill each other's dreams together move in the same direction together go the same way it's the marriage at Sinai you married You ever wish you had a playbook on your spouse? You know? I wish I had 600 rules that I could go reference every day. You know? But think about it for a minute. We have a relationship with God, right? You think you could tell me these 600 right here? Think you could tell me 50? You think you could tell me the top 10? Right? Maybe, maybe, but probably not. Which brings us to Jesus, because don't you find that at some fundamental, some fundamental level, marriage is not about a rule book. Marriage is not about just waking up in the morning, going, "Here's my daily checklist to keep me to keep me or to keep my wife happy." Right? At seven oh one, I'll wake up and I will promptly kiss her on the left cheek. But if my breath tastes like this, I will promptly brush first and then come and kiss. Right? We don't. Do it like that. We don't have a checklist. And if you do, can I just say marriage therapy, all right? Get counseling because marriage doesn't work like that. Did you ever wish, did you ever wish you could just have the spirit of your spouse? You know, what would it be like if I had the spirit of my spouse? Tina and I have been married for, for about 18 years now. What would it be like if I could be gifted with the spirit of Tina? Oh my gosh, can I just say, to to know what she's thinking, to intuitively have a grasp of who she is and what she's about and where she's going and how I could bring delight in her life and avoid the landmines that don't bring delight in mine. Are you with me? I think of what Jesus says. He says how he's going to come and how he's going to bring the very spirit of God himself. Let me show you this one passage. Paul writes to this early church. He says, you know, you show by your life that you're a letter from Christ, like a message from Christ, right? The result of our ministry but not when written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. Because the only thing better than having the rule book, the checklist, is having the very Spirit of the one that you're seeking to delight instead. That's what God gives to you, that's what Christ brings. This is what's embedded in the kernels of what God does at Sinai. Because when you first meet someone, sometimes there is a sense of learning the rules. But if the relationship grows, suddenly you realize you don't need rules anymore because you got it in here. You know at your core. You know what brings them delight in goodness. It's why Paul will say, you are not under the law. You are under the spirit. Because if you have the spirit of God, you don't need to read 600 commands. God has got it written right here. And that's why intimacy with him is so important. Because you'll never be able to know the spirit of someone that you're not intimate with. You'll never capture the spirit of someone that you don't spend time with. You'll never know the spirit of another human being who doesn't capture your heart, right? And that's why God invites you into a relationship with him. It's not just come and be saved. It's come and be saved. Now get to know me. Get to know what it means to have such an intimate relationship with me that it can only be described as the best ideal of husband and wife. There are all kinds of things that I think we call God, right? Father, Lord, Savior, Rock, Redeemer. Do you ever call him husband? Ew, right? Do you ever call him lover? That's what the Ten Commandments is. More on that next week.